chapter 4, verse 1. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Zach, Jason, will give you one. Anyone else? We're good? Okay, we're good. Perfect. That's good news. <clears throat> All right, verse 1 says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you, and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then he brought Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He shall give you his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray again. This is a very essential text, Lord. It's huge. It's heavy. Lord, I've I've labored in this passage and have found it difficult to... uh, even believe that I can do this justice, how significant this text is. Lord, I just simply thank you that that you have been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. It's mind-boggling. We flawed, imperfect uh, creatures cannot fathom that. We're so affected by sin, so stained and fractured by it. But ultimately, Lord, you, you've redeemed us, and, and we're going to be glorified and receive new bodies that will be incapable of, of aging and, 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 and incapable of, of committing any sort of sin or rebellion against you. And we thank you for that. Lord, just in this time, I ask that we would all uh, just give ourselves to you in worship, just ready to hear what your word has to uh, tell us and teach us. And Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to respond in repentance and obedience. I just ask that your spirit also would give me the words to say and uh, just make much of yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. First off, Satan, he's real. And he's a real enemy. And he wants to destroy you. He does. He hates you. He, he literally despises you. 
He lies to you. He tempts us. He accuses us. He's a bad dude. He's the antithesis of God. He's, he, he's the exact opposite of the character of God. He's everything God is not. And his mission is to simply condemn us, paralyze us, distract us, to prevent us from doing something that God has set us aside to do. And so he wants to deter us. He wants to render us absolutely useless. He doesn't want us they want to see us succeed. He doesn't want us to, to gather together as the community of God singing praises to him. He doesn't want to see us uh, enter into the community and ga- engage with non-believers and proclaim and herald his truth. He doesn't want any of that. And so his objective, since we are already God's possession and not his, is to simply deter us from doing what God has commissioned us to do. That's his objective. And and honestly, he doesn't sleep, so he's uh, tirelessly doing this thing, coming after us, accusing us. Another one of his objectives is to simply uh, distort and uh, contort and twist God's word and promises. Because ultimately, he wants us to question God. He he wants us to uh, question our identity he, want, he, he wants us to question, does God really love us? Is his grace really sufficient? When I sin, can I actually approach him in confidence? Or is there something that I have to do? Does he all of a sudden become uh, angry with me and, and, and despise me and turn his back? Those are things that Satan feeds us, and it's all lies. And he also knows the Bible really well. You, you read this passage, and he actually quotes from Psalm 91. He gets it. He's not a fool. He's smart to some degree. He's wise to some degree. And he's got some power. Yeah, he's got rule. Here's what's really interesting and difficult for us. We imagine Satan uh, with a pitchfork wearing a red cape, kind of being an obvious creature. Like, okay, Satan has entered the room. Okay, everyone run. But, but he's much more uh, stealthy and cunning and uh, sly, subtle. He doesn't come wearing a red cape or bearing a pitchfork or anything like that. So he kind of sneaks in subtly. He's smart. And he attacks us. In the opportune time, in the opportune time, he gets us. He attacks us when we're usually tired, hungry, And alone, isolated, in a wilderness, a proverbial wilderness, just being alone at home or just feeling alone, not having friends or family or anyone to come, no fellowship whatsoever, not a church, just being alone, being tired, restless. That's when Satan attacks. Also, he really enjoys um, kind of table-topping us. Uh, after a mountaintop experience. And so what he does is after we have a spiritual victory, he kind of comes behind us and, and, and some demons push us over. 
I mean, we all experience this, especially elders, deacons, pastors. Uh, we experience this, staff. I mean, especially in the preparation of Easter. I mean, months and months of organizing and, and structuring and planning goes into this one event. And we're praying and we're strategizing, and we're excited. And the event goes off, and, and it's amazing, and, and we're blessed, we're full of joy, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it was a, literally an amazing event. And, and the day after, that Monday, it's like, that's when Satan comes. That's when he just discourages. That's when he tells us, hey, you didn't do things right. We're tired, okay, we spent months doing this thing, and he comes in, and, and he... He feeds off that. That's what he does. And Christian, the reason why I share kind of Satan's schemes with you is because if we don't know how he attacks, then we don't know how to fight back. We don't know how to defend ourselves against him. Let me tell you something right off the bat. God's a heck of a lot more powerful than Satan. And people give him way too much credit. People spend way too much time talking about him. But we know... How he will end. It's already been written. He's a created being. Okay, he's not an all knowing, all powerful creature. There was a beginning to his existence. He is not God, he's a created being just like us. And so sometimes we give him way too much credit, but we have to actually understand what he intends to do to us and how to prepare ourselves for those attacks. Amen? Amen. And, and literally that is the big idea, is how we fight back. And the title of the sermon is simply, Jesus, our example in temptation. Jesus, our example in temptation. Now, every single person in this room and outside of it, everyone experiences temptation. Okay, it's, it's, not a, not, it's rather a, not a matter of if we are tempted, it's a matter of when we're tempted. And there's a common saying uh, that pastors usually say, uh, something like, we're either entering into a temptation, currently experiencing a temptation, or coming right out of a temptation. And it's kind of this perpetual cycle that never seems to end in our Christian life. Just one attack after another. One victory, then he attacks, and maybe a loss, a failure, and maybe another victory. He just, ah, just so many temptations. Maybe, maybe some of you have been tempted today, likely today. I mean, every day we are tempted in one way or another. Maybe it was literally maybe an hour leading up to coming here. No joke, I'll be straight honest with you. I did not want to preach this sermon. I had zero desire to. I, I, I literally thought, I'm going to call Rob and just have him preach this for me. I don't want to do this. And I was discouraged and I was angry, literally angry, so much so that I was rude to my wife. And I sinned. And so I was tempted to sin. So, I mean, I'm guilty. I've sinned today, moments before coming up here to preach this sermon. Some of you maybe have recently been tempted to lie yourself out of a situation that you got yourself into because you did something you shouldn't have done, and now you're trying to protect your reputation by lying about it. 
So people won't see you as sinner. They'll just see you as saint, and, and they won't have anything bad to say about you, but you won't man up or girl up to your failure. Maybe some of you have been struggling with uh, pornographic lust or sex outside of marriage. Maybe some of you have been tempted to gossip about someone in your workplace that drives you literally psycho. And so your natural instinct or inclination is to come home and badmouth them to your spouse or to your group of friends. Christians are really good at that in prayer circles. Maybe some of you have been tempted to uh, delve into substance abuse such as marijuana, pills, prescription medication, alcohol. Maybe some of you have been tempted to put off your reading, your prayer life, your devotional life, just leave the church altogether and just kind of do your own thing, pursue your own comfort, pursue your own identity and your own desires and your own cravings. And you've just kind of been doing that. But here's something that I need to address. Being tempted isn't the same as sinning, okay? Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin, okay? So it is very possible that you are tempted, but you remain without sin, okay? I'm not saying you're entirely sinless. I'm saying there are situations where the devil tempts you or you're tempted by your flesh, and it's like you have an initial thought, you know what, I'm going to, there's an opportunity for me to hurt that person. No, 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 no. That's absolutely wrong. And you submit to the spirit and you begin to pray, ask for strength to not harm that person. You see, when we submit to that temptation, it gives birth to sin. So the temptation itself isn't sin. And then once you submit to it, that's when you've sinned. When we begin to fantasize, plot, or carry out that temptation, that sinful desire that act of rebellion, that's when we sin. Whether it's internally or externally. Whether a girl walks by and you notice that she's beautiful and you're like, oh, and you just begin to fantasize, that's now sin. Or whether you act externally where you verbally abuse someone, that is an external example of us sinning. We tend to submit to temptation because we're sinners who have been broken and fractured and corrupted by sin. And so we're kind of distorted. There's something wrong with us. We aren't the way God intended us to be. There's, there's, there's a cancer. It's sin. And it's oftentimes difficult for us to actually, by our own willpower and strength, to resist temptation. And that's because nothing good dwells in us. We can't have enough power within ourselves to do better. That's why people tend to relapse all the time. Secondly, we really don't know how to defend against these attacks. Like I said before, let's, let's, let's think about when Satan attacks. When we're tired, when we're hungry, after a mountaintop high, this is when Satan likes to come in. Okay, you know, how do we defend ourselves against that? Jesus shows us right here in this passage, right here. How do we respond when we're tempted by Satan? How do we fight back? Jesus models this right here in this passage. He models how we are to victoriously defeat Satan when we're tempted. Okay, everyone tracking. We're all on base. Cool. 
Let's go into the passage now. Actually, real quick. You know what? Just kidding. Let's do it. I thought maybe I needed a little bit longer of an intro. Notorious 10-minute long intros. All right, let's go. Verse 1, then Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. It's a water baptism. The whole Trinity shows up. Boom. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal. The Father verbally says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. That's a big deal. Jesus is stoked. And then he's filled with the Spirit and led by the Spirit. The same Spirit that fills us. The same Spirit that leads us. Remember, he's the example. He's not cheating here. He's not doing something that we can't do. He's not using any of his divine attributes to do this thing. He's completely dependent on the Spirit. And so he's showing us how we as Christians and dwelt by the Spirit can also do the same thing he did. He's modeling it for us. He's not doing something that's impossible. Some will say, well, he's just God. Yes, but he's also man. He's fully God, fully man. He's divine, but he also has a human nature which becomes tired, which becomes hungry, which becomes saddened and joyful. So he experiences this thing. He, he, he goes off and he goes into the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And the, uh, the essential thing to, to note here is that he's filled and led by the Spirit. Now, we're either led by the Spirit or led by the flesh. Those are the two options. Following the Spirit, being led by the Spirit leads us to what? Life, joy, happiness. We begin to bear fruit. When we submit to the flesh, what does that produce? Death, destruction, separation from God. Those are the two options. Here's the trick, though. Here's the tricky thing. Being led by the Spirit isn't always the easy thing. It's not the most convenient thing. It's difficult, right? God takes us places we just don't want to go. It's difficult. It's hard. It's out of our comfort zone. But again, he supplies his strength via what? His spirit. Okay, so although we know it may be difficult, we know the outcome. What's the outcome? Glory. Joy. Unity with God the Spirit and his people. We know the outcome. So it's all worth it. Jesus went and suffered, but he knew the outcome. He knew he would rise from the dead. He knew that we would also, with him, rise from the dead. That's why he did it. He got it. He understood it. But when we submit to the flesh, it's super easy. It's the easy way out. It's the comfortable way. It really is. You know, oftentimes we think that we're in a proverbial desert, but really we've got a couch and we have... Three, four, five, six, one, I don't know how many bedrooms. At least you have a bedroom and a living room. And we've got kind of this cush life. And we just give up so easily. And we have everything we could possibly ask for. And we just simply wake up in the morning, tempted, oh, I gave in. It was so difficult. That was easy. The hard thing is, is, Opening up the word and digesting it, meditating on it, 
understanding what Scripture means, praying, spending time in union with God. Those things don't come natural to us. But we know that when we do those things, we know the outcome. And so sometimes I just don't understand why I don't do it. It's ridiculous. So right after a mountaintop experience, the Trinity shows up. That's a big deal. Satan's time to attack. Right after Jesus' mountaintop experience. The Trinity shows up. His father's there. It's like, boom, everything's happening. Now Satan comes in. Okay, watch out. Whether you have led someone to Christ, whether you lead a ministry or a small group, a redemption group, whether you uh, have a teaching ministry or you're simply sharing with people uh, at your work and, and, and someone's coming to church, whatever the victory is, that attack is coming. Prepare yourself. We're going to go through practically how to do that. Here we go. Here's my point number two, and this is reason number one, reason number one for God allowing Jesus to be tempted. Why did God the Father let Jesus be tempted? Here's reason number one. Jesus identifies with us. I'm going to explain what this means theologically and practically. Luke 4, 1 through 2 says, Then Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for 40 days by the devil. Jesus was tempted. Okay? In every way imaginable, and probably more severe than any of us have ever experienced, yet he remained without sin. None of us can say that. None of us can say we're without sin. And if you do, you're a liar. There's only one man who can claim this, and it's Jesus. And we see this here proved in the scripture that he did not sin, but he willingly entered into temptation in order to identify with his people And subsequently deliver us from that temptation. To be our high priest in time of need. And when we're tempted, he gets it. He understands. He sympathizes and shows compassion because he was victimized. He was abandoned by his brethren. Judas sold him out for money. He was literally beaten to a pulp. I mean, the dude had his beard ripped out. That's not fun. His flesh was mangled. So Jesus understands this. And even more severe, I wouldn't say even more severe, but on the same level of of just experiencing suffering and trial and, and, and temptation, he was tempted by the devil himself. That, that, that's, that's pretty severe temptation. And I mean, he hadn't eaten for 40 days. So, so I, the point that I want you guys to understand and Jesus identifies with us is the fact that he gets it. He relates to us. And you cannot say, Jesus doesn't understand my pain. Yes, he does. And that's why he shows so much compassion on you when you're enduring those things. He understands the strength that you need, but you don't have. And so therefore, we can approach him and ask for it, and he gives it. 1 Peter 2.22 says, again, 1 Peter 2.22 says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor deceit from his mouth. He's without sin, no sin. And Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Amen? but was in all points tempted as we are. In all points, 
every single way imaginable. He was tempted, yet without sin. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, not like angels, okay, not like animals, but like his brethren, like the human race, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And that propitiation is the removal of God's wrath on a sinful individual. And verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid to those who are tempted. Okay, what does this mean practically? We can speak with Jesus when we're tempted. We can approach him. And he's our example how to deal with it. And so the idea here is he's not immune. And so when you're tempted, guess who the first person you're going to is? Jesus. That's who you run to. He understands. He relates. He's not immune to it. And we can trust and rely on him to help us. Amen? Here we go. Here's what some theologians might say, or liberal theologians, or people who are of another religion. Okay, you've said, Aaron, that Jesus was tempted. Okay, I understand that he's without sin, but you you say he's tempted. So you also claim, theologically, that Jesus is fully God. But I opened up the book and I used, or I used, you know, Google and I typed in this one and I found James 1.13 that says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. For God cannot be tempted by evil. For God cannot be tempted by evil. Aaron, there's a contradiction here. No, there's not. I'll explain it. Okay, think for a second. This is honestly really difficult to explain. I'm not going to underemphasize that. I, it's difficult. Track, track. It's mind-boggling. The incarnation is a touchy, touchy uh, subject, and we have to make sure it's essential that we make sure that we don't stray into heresy. The Son of God has always existed. There's never been a time where He didn't. He's fully God in every way. Okay, he's co-eternal, co-substantial. He's equally important as God the Father and, and God the, the Spirit. Never a time where he didn't exist. The God-man Jesus came into existence in the incarnation. Here's what I mean. God the Son added human nature to himself without losing any of his divine attributes. Okay, so we have humanity being added to his divinity. That's a miracle. And it composed, those two natures, one person whose name is Jesus, the God-man. Okay, so, so the God-man hasn't always been man, but he's always been God. Everyone on that page? All right. Here's, before I say that, he will always remain fully God and fully man. He was resurrected in a body that was the first fruits, a prototype of the body that we will also receive. And so he will eternally reign as fully God and fully man forever. Here's what I'm trying to say. Anything that is true of the one nature is true of the person. Anything that is true of the one nature, whether divine or human, is true of the person. Okay, so when you're writing a letter, you don't say, my hand wrote the letter, but my foot did not. 
And if you say that, you need help. No, you say, I wrote the letter, right? It is true to say, my foot did not write it. It's true to say, my hand wrote it. But we don't say that. We say, I wrote it. That's a true statement, right? And so what is true of the one nature of Jesus, even though it's not true of the other one, is true of the person of Christ. So although God cannot be tempted, his divine nature was never tempted. But his humanity was. And that is true of the person of Christ. Okay? Is everyone on page here? That's a huge theological thing that we got to tackle. Memorize it. Just kidding. That's probably difficult. Jesus is the greater Adam. He goes into the wilderness, picks up where Adam left off. You see, Adam wasn't in the wilderness. He was in paradise. The conditions were a little different. You see, Adam had food. He had paradise. He was walking with God. There was nothing really going on that was bad. And he just gave up and rebelled. He sinned. And subsequently, all of human humanity went with him. His condemnation, his guilt was then credited to all of us. He was our representative or federal head. So when he sinned, we all sinned. He failed. And then Jesus, the second Adam, comes in and succeeds where Adam fails. You see, Adam as our representative was to obey in our place, but he failed and then consequently affected all of us. Jesus comes in, succeeds in his obedience where Adam failed, and then ensures credits our righteousness. That's huge. Adam failed. The second Adam did. He succeeded where the first Adam didn't. And because Jesus remained sinless and did not submit to the cravings and the temptations and whatever, we can be credited righteousness. And so it's of most importance that Jesus remains sinless during this temptation. He's the greater Adam. Let's get into the first temptation here. And we'll, we'll, we'll speed this along here. Luke 4, 3 through 4 says, And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. The first thing Satan does is say, If you are the Son of God. He challenges Jesus' identity. If you are the Son of God. He doesn't doubt it. Okay, I'm not saying Satan is doubting. He knows what Jesus has come to do. But he's going to challenge it. He's going to question it. Just prior, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. God the Father had just said in Luke 3.22 that Jesus was the Son of God. He establishes Christ's identity. And Jesus knew his identity. Satan does the same thing to us. Even though we've been given a new identity in Christ, he challenges it. And he loves to challenge it when we've sinned. He baits us on the hook, he lures us in, then we snag, he pulls us and he says, are you really a Christian? Does God really love you? Are you really adopted into a new family? 
Does God really give you grace? Can you really approach him? And so he challenges our identity. And if our identity is messed up, then the way we live will be messed up. Listen, if you think you're a sinner, you're going to sin. Every time you're tempted, I'm a sinner, that's what sinners do, that's why I submit. But if you understand that you're a saint, saints are redeemed from sin, freed from bondage, therefore we live in holiness. And so if you're forgetting your identity because Satan keeps challenging it and questioning it, did God really say, did he really say that you're a son of God, that you're a child of God, that you're loved, that you're accepted? Did he really say those things? And then we begin to question, we begin to doubt. And then what happens is we begin to leave the church and we begin to stop doing devos because what? We think God is angry at us and now we have to religiously obey him so that he can approve of us. And that's works-based salvation and that's just heresy. We can approach God in confidence because he's given us a new identity. He's made us blameless and Jesus stands as our advocate in our place. And he did all the work for us. He did all the work for us. We don't have to do anything to try to approach him. We simply respond by faith. But Jesus did the work that we couldn't do. He did it all. That's the gospel. And and, and Satan preaches false gospels and says, no, 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 no. Your salvation is conditional on your obedience. You can only approach God when you're going to church, when you're doing church, when you're obeying and evangelizing. That's the only time where God loves you. That's the false gospel Satan preaches. But every time we fail, he gets in there, he deters us. We've all experienced this. Please, I pray it's not just me, right? All right. Then what does he do? He says, yo, Jesus, you're hungry. Turn these stones into bread. At this point, Jesus is starving to death. He's being stretched. He's tired. He's hungry. He's all alone, and Satan comes in. Hey, yo, just turn this rock, this stone into bread. It's no big deal. You can turn water into wine. It's no big deal. Go ahead. Do it. Satan is commanding him to do it. But Jesus doesn't because who's commanding him to do it? Satan, not the Father. That's why he doesn't do it. Easily. He could have done it. But it was the person who was commanding him to do that thing. That's why he resisted. Now, that's when we're tempted most, at least me. Okay, I'm going to be a little transparent here. After I do a Sunday like today, after many services and preparation and preaching and all of that, dealing with high schoolers and all of that stuff, Mondays are when I am tired when I'm just hungry and I'm so tired that I don't even get up to get anything to eat. So I'm just sitting in bed like, dang, I just wish I just had food miraculously given to me right now. I would turn this pillow into a Big Mac and it would just be amazing. And then then I'm all alone because my wife's at work and we have Mondays off. Right, Zach? We have Mondays off. It used to be the worst. I'll be straight up with you guys. That day... Monday was the day I was most tempted to sin sexually. I was all alone. I was tired. I had a mountaintop high. And many times I failed. 
Now, since being married, God has been gracious enough to weave those things out of my life, and, and he's working on it, and, 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 and by the grace of God, I'm, I'm putting those deeds to, to death. But here's the thing. We exchange one sin for another. And so now I've got to be careful, because after that victory, what I tend to do is relax and, and pursue comfort. And I kind of take my time, and I don't read. That's, that's the, I, I spend the least amount of time in prayer on Monday. And now I'm worshiping comfort. So now I have a comfort problem. Or even a worship problem, worshiping comfort rather than the God who gives me comfort. And that's a problem. You see, food, drink, rest, intimacy, all those things, they're all gifts from God. All of them. But when the gifts take the place of the giver of the gifts, that's idolatry. That's when it becomes bad. When we begin to seek the pleasure apart from the pleasure giver, that's idolatry. When we elevate gifts above giver, that's a problem. When we attribute ultimate value and glory to the things that God gives us, that's messed up. That's not the way God intended to be. Food, drink, friendship, relationships, sex, marriage, all of that given to God Because he's good and he desires to bless his children. But the unfortunate thing is when we have so much of that, we lose sight of God. We replace those things on the throne of God. And we forget him. And that's bad. And Jesus is basically saying, every word of God is more important than the bread we eat. And he quotes Deuteronomy 8.18. And before I get into any further to this, the reason number two why God allowed Jesus to be tempted, here, Jesus is enticing, or excuse me, Satan is enticing Jesus to use his divine attributes for selfish reasons. And and nowhere in scripture do we see Jesus using his divinity for his own good. Every time he performs miracles, it's to heal others, not himself. Every time he heals someone's suffering, he does not heal his own suffering. When he turned all the the loaves and and fed all those people, it was for others, to bless other people, not himself. And, And Satan's saying, yo, use your divinity for yourself. Become selfish. But Jesus, he humbled himself and lived a humble life. He took the humble role. And use his attributes for the good of others. Man, that's a good reason to worship him. Reason number two. God allowed Jesus to be tempted like this to show us how we are to fight. And here's what's essential. Know your Bible. How does he respond? He quotes scripture. It's not real complicated. He just quotes Deuteronomy 8.18. Every word of God is more important than the bread we eat, Satan. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. That's our weapon. We use that to wage war. But unfortunately, most of us young folk and maybe some of us older folk have simply just become complacent 
and exchanged reading and devouring the word for hobbies, for other experiences or causes. And we spend our time doing all this stuff and we're distracted. And what happens? We're not ready when Satan comes. Jesus is ready. He knows the Bible and he responds when he's tempted. We are to know the Bible and respond when we are tempted by quoting scripture. There's power to that. There's power to that, amen? I thought of this analogy or this illustration the other night. When, when we skimp out on devotion, I mean, and what I mean by skip out, I mean like read fifth for 15 minutes and we just go like his winnowing fan in his hand and he went through his room clean, flourishing floor and he gathering weed in his barns, chaff, cake, boom, close it up, boom, devotion's done. I, I was telling a buddy of mine the other day, I was like, that's like preparing an amazing meal and putting it in the blender and drinking as a smoothie. You just don't get anything from it at all. It's just like, that's what it's like. That's what those little blaster devotions are. It's like drinking a terrible smoothie. Instead of enjoying steak wrapped in bacon and like mashed potatoes on top with like asparagus and like all that other stuff that I'm really craving. (laughs) I got to keep going. Second temptation. Luke 4, 5 through 8. I'm sorry that I preached so long. I'm so sorry. Luke 4, 5 through 8. Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I will give you, and their glory, for, for this has been delivered to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone you shall serve. Satan wanted him to take the the easy way out. Yo, you can skip the cross and the suffering altogether. Here it is. And Jesus would have had authority. He would have had power. He would have had fame. He would have had everyone submitting to him, bowing to him. But guess what? None of us would have been redeemed. He knew his mission. He, He understood what he was supposed to do. The Father's plan was for the Son to come obediently into human history and die on the cross, ensuring our redemption. Anything other would have just screwed everything up. Satan comes to Jesus and basically says, I thought the Father loved you. I thought the Father was a king. I thought he owned all the cattle on a thousand hills and that you should be eating good food, not starving. You should be living in a big house, not a barren wilderness. You should have a bunch of servants, not to tend to yourself. Just let them do it for you. And some buy this lie. You know, Satan has preachers. And they preach this prosperity because this is what Jesus is being tempted with. First hungry, second prosperity. Look at all that you can have, lust of the eyes. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. Everything you want, everything you want, I'll give it to you. And people believe this. Oh, yeah, I do deserve the best clothes. I do deserve the best house, the biggest car, the the greatest car, the most expensive car, the best items, the best fan. I deserve all these things. God, give them to me. And some people preach this stuff. Jesus, had a, Jesus was a rich man. Jesus had a big house. He had a nice car. He wore, wore uh, designer clothes. It's all satanic. It's all a lie. It's trash. Throw it out. 
It is. This is not the gospel. And here's what we do. We act as if God isn't preparing a kingdom for us with an inheritance. And so we begin to build our own on earth, missing the idea that everything is going to burn up in the end and a new kingdom is coming, one that will never end, never fade away, that has real eternal value. These chairs, our phones, our clothes, none of that has eternal value. But Christians, we, 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 we become greedy and we consume because we're doubting the fact that God has an inheritance waiting for us, a kingdom waiting for us. And when we begin to doubt these things and forget the gospel and our identity, we, we begin to live corruptly. That's what happens. Here we go. I'll finish with this one. Third temptation. Then he brought him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, if you, are on the, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, it has been said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Okay, uh, Satan knows the Bible. Okay, and, and, and they have gatherings, and they get together with the demons, and, the, and they go through the word of God, and like, okay, how can we distort this? How can we make them believe? Or, or, or how can we pull scripture verses out of context and make it seem righteous and make it seem good and lead people astray? I mean, I've seen pastors do this. They seem super spiritual. They're wearing the nice clothes. They're standing in front of thousands of people and they're preaching one verse after another. And if you're not smart, if you don't know your word, you're like, none of those connect. And that's what Satan does. And that's what he's doing here. He's quoting Psalm 91, 11 through 12 and he wrongly interprets it and applies it. The Psalm isn't saying test God and he'll prove himself to you. It's saying when you're faithful to God, he'll help you in a time of need. When you serve him, he'll help you. Not, oh, test God, test God, test God. He'll prove himself to be real. No, that's not the message here. But that's Satan distorting it. But Jesus understood that he was enticing him to take a step of faith that would actually test God in an ungodly way. And once again, I see people doing this. I see preachers preaching this to test God in an ungodly way. And it's satanic. Now, now Jesus knew scripture better, so he quotes in response Deuteronomy 6.16. So what does he do again? Quote scripture. He doesn't throw a lightning bolt at him. He just quotes scripture. And Jesus rejects Satan's twisting of scripture. And he rightly divides the word of truth, and he quotes it properly, in context. Now, this is why we need to know our Bibles. Amen? Okay? I... If I'm preaching to anyone, it's to myself. I mean, I'm in the word of God preparing sermons every week. But sometimes I'm not, you know what I mean, in the Bible. I'm like just devouring to just blah. I got to let it sink in. I got to let it affect me. I did that for two years of Bible college. Just knowledge in, knowledge in, zero transformation. But information should transform if we're applying these truths to ourselves. 
Let it go in, let it sit, enjoy it, and then let it go out. Don't read for the sake of information. Read for the sake of transformation. Amen? Here we go. This is where I'll close. Right here, last page, I promise. Once we've resisted Satan, guess what he does? Leaves. James 4, 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Luke 14, or rather, Luke 4, 13 says, Now when the devil had ended every temptation, he what? Departed from him. Until when? An opportune time. Guess what? He's coming back. Okay, he leaves, but he's going to come back. And when's the opportune time? When we experience victory, we take off all of our armor, we empty the bullets out of our gun, we take off our helmet, we're relaxed, Satan comes in. We do this. We, we experience uh, defeat of sin. We're like, I defeated that temptation. Praise you, God. And then we believe as if it was ourselves who enabled us to do that. And then we trust in whom? Ourselves to continue going in the right direction. But then we relapse. We gotta be constantly in the word. We gotta constantly be praying. We gotta constantly be in fellowship, being encouraged by one another, being in small groups, having friends over, encourage, just calling it, just help each other. Because Satan's seeking. 1 Peter 5 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So we gotta gear up. We do. we got to fight back. And, and we do this by submitting to the Spirit. By being taught by Him. By Him illuminating truth in the Word that He inspired. And, and then digesting it. And then quoting it. And applying it. Believing it. Trusting that it is good. This is why it's essential to read and pray and fellowship daily. Last point. We worship Jesus. When we sin, we're worshiping the devil. When we sin, it's Satan worship. Satan has one mantra, one command, and that's do what thou wilt. Do whatever makes you happy. Seek as much pleasure as you want. That's his only command. And so then we worship that, and guess what? It leads to destruction, misery. It does. I'm sure some of you older folk can, can, can testify to this, uh, uh, to this a, a lot greater than I can, but, but I can also. I know where sin leads. I know where you end up. I get it. I've experienced it. We worship Jesus. You see, we sin because we have a worship problem, and we get out of that problem by worshiping rightly. Jesus came into human history. He identifies with us. He obeys where we couldn't. He knows our temptations and sufferings. He went to the cross and was executed. And it seemed like all hope was lost. But then on the third day, he rose again, defeating Satan's sin and death, ensuring our redemption, ensuring our forgiveness, ensuring our reconciliation and our new identity and our adoption. He did all of this. And this is what I have to say. You, if you are in union with Christ, don't belong to Satan. You belong to Jesus. You're his possession, not Satan's. 
You're no longer considered a child of wrath, a son of disobedience. You're now a child of God. That's the identity God gives you as his own. He, he adopts you into a family and gives you a new identity because of the work that Jesus has done for you. Not because you're good, not because you're great, not because you're smart, but because Jesus is. That's the gospel. He's delivered you from the kingdom of darkness. He's delivered you to the kingdom of light. He's div- delivered you from the kingdom of darkness and delivered you to the kingdom of light. He's made us victorious because of what Jesus has done. He's given us righteousness. He's given us a new family. He's reconciled us to God. He no longer sees you as a sinner, as an addict, as a slave. He calls you his own. And he loves you relentlessly. And Jesus guarantees this because he seals us with his spirit. It's the seal of our authenticity that we belong to him. And guess what? By virtue of the power of the spirit, we are able to put the sin, uh, the, the cravings of our flesh to death and live like Jesus. Jesus is our example He was spirit-led, spirit-filled. He quoted scripture. We have all those things. We have all those resources to use, right? We're all holding it right here. Satan is no match against the power of God. No match. He isn't as great as people make him out to be. But he does, does lead us astray if we're not careful if we don't understand his schemes, if we don't know how to fight back, but by the power of God that lives in us, we can defeat him. Amen? Band, come back up, and I'll close with prayer. Father God, we're a mess without you. We're so in desperate need, dire need of your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you don't leave us when we do submit to our temptations, when we do give birth to sin. I thank you that our identity doesn't change. But when it's challenged by Satan, even challenged by ourselves, I pray that you would help us to preach the gospel, to remind ourselves who we are in you. And that changes everything. We've already been saved. We don't need to sin any longer. And Lord Jesus, also, also, just in your example of just knowing Scripture and knowing how to divide it and, and knowing how to use it in the right time, Lord, help us to do that also by virtue of your Spirit. Lord God, you are awesome. And we gather to worship an awesome God who sympathizes with us, who knows and relates to us. but we worship you and not someone else because you're the only person who didn't actually sin. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, just stand with me and sing. Stand with me. Yeah. Actually, um, I changed up the song a little bit for uh, what he preached about. and The song, I don't know if you guys have played it or not, it's called uh, Give Me Faith, and it's just about...